0: Log Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network.
1: I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. This is Fundamentally Mormon. Today we're going to be covering chapter 15 of Polygamy in the Bible. We'll be on pages 159 to 161. It's a pretty short chapter. And this chapter is titled... concluding the Old Old Testament. The reader portion of the program is about six minutes long. Once we get through this portion of the program, we will go through the commentary and the reading. After we're done with the commentary and the reading, I'm going to talk about my personal spiritual experiences and I'm going to talk about my history. The guest call in number is 917-889-8827 for anybody who has any questions or comments. The chat room is available at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentallymormon. Let's get into this. This is concluding the Old Testament. Thank you for listening.
2: Concluding the Old Testament, chapter 15 of Polygamy in the Bible. Pages 159 to 161, the great or wise and righteous father of the human race is a stable lawgiver. He is not so capricious as to give specific laws to part of mankind and another set of laws to someone else. Nor with the changing of time does he allow these laws to change. If polygamy were wrong or displeasing to God, he never would have tolerated it at all. If it were in sin, he would have said so in the beginning of time, and not waited four thousand years to make up his mind. Furthermore, if it were in sin, he would have made very definite laws against it, and he would have clearly described the punishments that should be inflicted upon those who lived it. He would have included the law against polygamy with the other commandments, so that people could read them, study them, and teach them as his law. But There is no such law against it in the Old Testament. Polygamy is either lawful or unlawful. So far in the Bible we have not discovered anywhere that God said it was unlawful. For many, it is a revolting fact to learn that God had a man stoned to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath, that thousands of men in Israel had to die because of one act of immorality even juvenile delinquents were 160 stoned to death by the elders yet God allowed his show prophets patriarchs judges and kings in Israel to live polygamy now on the other hand let's consider an act of adultery in the eyes of God and man it has always been considered one of the blackest crimes against the law it is so degrading loathsome and revolting in its nature, that God classed it with the act of murder. God's law required a punishment of death to those guilty of murder or adultery. If polygamy would have been considered adultery, then almost all of the ancient prophets would have been stoned to death, according to the law of God. But nowhere in the Bible do we find an instance of a man being stoned to death, because he had two or more wives. Even those heathen nations who became corrupt through their sexual adulteries, homosexual acts, and whoredoms, were not considered worthy to live, for the Lord told the children of Israel that when they went to battle against them – the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breatheth, but thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely, the Hittites, and the Amorites the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods. So should you sin against the Lord your God. Jude 20, 16-18, 161, From the beginning of time. For as long as there is a future, there must be specific and consistent laws to govern the moral nature of man. Wherever there is virtue, there is vice. Where there is morality, there is immorality. And, where there is marriage, there are unwavering laws that bind it. In God's great wisdom, He knows which laws are best for His children's virtue and happiness. If it would not have been righteous for men to have more than one wife, then He would have made laws to forbid it. We have seen that God has continually forbid a woman from having more than one husband. He made laws that forbid any man, whether married or unmarried, that cohabited with a woman, to ever divorce her or cast her away. We read of a law that required the man's brother, whether married or single, to marry his brother's widow. It is written that God said to take concubines in war as wives. We have seen that God gave wives to David when he already had wives and in the same fathers. We read of God's abounding love for the polygamists Abraham, Jacob and many other prophets, patriarchs and kings. We read of great and wonderful blessings given to the children born in polygamy that were never given to the children of monogamists. But we have not found where God chastised or punished any man for righteously having more than one wife. Remember that these principles and practices were established upon God's laws. The Old Testament of the Bible has clearly demonstrated and proved that polygamy was very lawful and that God made it acceptable and pleasing in His sight. Now we shall see if it is treated the same in the New Testament. 162
1: chapter 16 John the Baptist okay so like I said very short chapter concluding the Old Testament a little bit of commentary there of Ogden Kraut I'll give my commentary now and then like I said Um, The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. Concluding the Old Testament, chapter 15 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 159 to 161. The great, all-wise, and righteous father of the human race, is a stable lawgiver, he is not so capricious as to give specific laws to part of mankind and another set of laws to someone else. Nor with the changing of time does he allow these laws to change. If polygamy were wrong or displeasing to God, he never would have tolerated it at all. If it were a sin, he would have said so in the beginning of time and not waited 4,000 years to make up his mind. Furthermore, if it were a sin, he would have made very definite laws against it and he would have clearly described <clears throat> excuse me, the punishment that should be inflicted upon those who lived it he would have included the law against polygamy with other commandments so that people could read them study them and teach them as his law but there is no such law against it in the old testament polygamy is either lawful or unlawful so far as the bible so far in the bible we have not discovered anywhere that god said it was unlawful for many, it is a revolting fact to learn that God had made a man stoned for death uh, to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. That thousands of men in Israel had to die because of one act of immorality. That even juvenile delinquents were stoned to death by the elders. Yet God allowed his choice prophets, patriarchs, Judges and kings in Israel to live polygamy. Now on the other hand, let's consider an act of adultery. In the eyes of God and man, it has always been considered one of the blackest crimes against the law. It is so degrading, loathsome, and revolting in its nature that God classed it with the act of murder. God's laws require a punishment of death to those guilty of murder or adultery. If polygamy would have been considered adultery, then almost all the ancient prophets would have been stoned to death, according to the law of God. But nowhere in the Bible do we find an instance of a man being stoned to death because he had two or more wives. Even those heathen nations who became corrupt through their sexual adulteries, homosexual acts, and whoredoms, were not considered worthy to live for the Lord told the children of Israel that when they went to battle against the cities of these people, which the Lord thy God, or Jehovah our Elohim, doth give thee for an inheritance, thou shalt save alive nothing that breathes, but thou shalt utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Havites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. that they they teach you not to do after all of their abominations, which they have done unto their gods. So should ye sin against the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18, page 161. From the beginning of time, for as long as there is a future, there must be specific and consistent laws to govern the moral nature of man. Whenever there is virtue, there is vice. Where there is morality, there is immorality. And where there is marriage, there are unwavering laws that bind it. In God's great wisdom, he knows which laws are best for his children's virtue and happiness. If it would not have been righteous for men to have more than one wife, then he would have made laws to forbid it. We have seen that God has continually forbid a woman from having more than one husband. He made laws that forbid any man, whether married or unmarried, that cohabitate with a woman, to ever divorce her or cast her away. We read of the law that required a man's brother, whether married or single, to marry his brother's widow. It is written that God said to take concubines in war as wives. We have seen that God gave wives to David when he already had wives and did the same for others. And also, um, before he was anointed as a king, he was a polygamist. And that's the same with Saul. Saul was a polygamist before he was anointed as a king. And when Saul committed suicide by falling on his sword, God, through the prophet, gave those wives to David who was already a polygamist. Continuing on with the reading. Let's see. We have seen that God gave wives to David when he already had wives and did the same for others. We read of God's abounding love for the polygamist, Abraham, Jacob, and many other prophets, patriarchs, and kings. We read of great and wonderful blessings given to the children born in polygamy that were never given to the children of monogamists. But we have, found, we have not found where God chastised or punished any man for righteously having more than one wife. Remember that these principles and practices were established upon God's laws. The Old Testament of the Bible has clearly demonstrated and proved that polygamy was a very lawful was very lawful that God made it acceptable and pleasing in his sight. Now we shall see if it is treated the same in the New Testament. So when we come back tomorrow we're going to go over chapter 16 and we're going to talk about John the Baptist and we're going to get into the New Testament. So, um, I I guess I'll just uh, give a little bit of thought here. Some people have claimed that we cannot trust the Old Testament. They claim that everything has been corrupted in the Old Testament, and that's why we can't look to the Old Testament or even the New Testament, as any evidence that polygamy is an issue because they have a problem with polygamy because they take a scripture out of context in Jacob chapter 2. Now, Joseph Smith said in April of 1844 in the Times and Seasons, if they contradict the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine and Covenants, you set them down as impostors. If Joseph said that if they contradict the Bible, then he thought that there was enough evidence in the Bible that we could trust it. Let's let's read that again. If any man writes to you or preaches to you doctrines contrary to the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine and Covenants, set him down as an imposter. That can be found in the Times and Seasons, April 1st, 1844. Now, some people, like I said, they say, oh, you can't trust the Bible. But can we trust the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible? Some people will say that the translation was never finished. Well, let's see here. Let me just look up. I'm going to look up translation of the Bible. hmm Okay, yes, here it is. Inspired Translation of the Bible. Okay, I'm going to read a couple of quotes. The LDS Church does not want you to know that Joseph Smith finished the Old and the New Testament. In fact, if you type in your search engine, Rabbi Google, (laughs) um, and type in Joseph Smith Translation of the Bible or Joseph Smith Translation, You can actually find a full PDF of it online, and you can read all the way from Genesis to Revelation where Joseph Smith finished the inspired translation of the Bible. But let's get into a couple of these quotes. Most of them are in the Times and Seasons, Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, and... Preface to the Inspired Translation. Alright. This is Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 56. He that can mark the power of omnipotence inscribed upon the heavens can also see God's own handwriting in the sacred volume. And he who reads it oftenest will like it best, and he who is acquainted with it will know the hand wherever he can see it. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, page 56. Times and Seasons, volume 4, page 336. Quote, The Lord gave some more extended information upon the scriptures, a translation of which had already commenced. Times and Seasons, volume 4, page 336. On April Uh, I'm sorry, on February 2nd, 1833, Joseph Smith wrote, I completed the translation and review of the New Testament. End quote. See, Times and Seasons, chapter 5, verses, I'm sorry, volume 5, page 723. In the Times and Seasons, volume 6, page 802, It says, on February 2nd, 1833, Joseph took the manuscript of the New Testament, which was completed. And that's in the Times and Seasons, Volume 5, page 723. And then the the other one, I'm sorry, I I screwed it up a little bit. So this next one is Times and Seasons, Volume 6, page 802. Uh, Let's see here. And filled it up. The Old Testament completed July 2nd, 1835. So he's saying here that the New Testament was completed by February 2nd, 1833, and the Old Testament was completed July 2nd, 1835. Those two quotes are found in the Times and Seasons, Volume 5, page 723, and Times and Seasons, Volume 6, page 802. In Times and Seasons, Volume 6, page 802, and also Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 1, page 368, it is said, on July second, 1833, Sidney Rigdon wrote, We this day finished the translation of the scriptures, having finished the translation of the Bible a few hours since. And then in the preface to the Inspired Translation, page 3, it says, This work, speaking of the Inspired Translation of the Bible, is given to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and to the public in." and pursuance of the commandment of God so God's the one that commanded that the inspired translation take place continuing on as concerning the manner of the translation and correction it is evident from the manuscripts and testimony of those who were conversant with the fact that it was done by direct revelation from God it was begun June of 1830 and it was finished July 2nd of 1833. But today in the church, they will teach you that some teachers and writers have begun to use this so-called inspired version of the Bible, which the prophet Joseph Smith undertook but never completed. The presiding brethren urged the use of the King James Version of the Bible, which is the official Bible of the church, since the prophet did not complete his work on the revision. Church News, November 16, 1974, page 16. They don't want you to read it. Joseph Smith finished it. Sidney Rigdon testified that it was done. So those people who say you can't trust the Bible, well, go and look it up. Go look up all of these scriptures, and you're going to find all over the inspired translation of the Bible that God blessed polygamists. And people who throw the Bible under the bus because they don't like polygamy Well, let's go back to what Joseph Smith said about them. Because Joseph Smith, right before his death in April 1st of 1844, he said, if any man writes to you or preaches to you doctrines contrary to the Bible, the Book of Mormon, or the Doctrine and Covenants, set him down as an imposter. Some people we need to let go of their pride and realize that if their interpretation of Scripture contradicts other interpretations of Scripture, that their interpretation of Scripture is incorrect. God showed me, and I've said it, and I'm going to say it again, and I will stand upon this principle no matter if I stand alone, that there is a sealing ordinance that is most important that a man and a woman are required to be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise to receive their exaltation. And because there are more elect females than there are males, God allows these sealings to take place. Joseph Smith never did live polygamy in the way that the ancient Prophets lived it. he did not live it the way Brigham Young or Heber C. Kimball or John Taylor or any of these other guys lived it, but he understood, and i don 't believe I don't believe that he wanted to to live polygamy i don't he's like me i don't want to live polygamy. I will live it if God asks me to live it or commands me to live it, but I am not looking forward to living it. however, Joseph Smith understood the importance of the sealing ordinances where a man and a woman were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. He also understood the sealing ordinances that seal us up to the Father and to the Son through the law of adoption, which thing is not understood by the church today because it was done away with by Wilfred Woodruff in the 1890s. But Joseph Smith was sealed to many, many men and women partly because of the law of adoption, but also because women are required in order to receive their exaltation to be sealed to a righteous man who qualifies for the higher blessings. Joseph Smith was sealed to women who are already married, and the reason for that wasn't so he could have sex with them, because Joseph Smith never had any children by anyone other than Emma. These women who qualified for the higher blessings of exaltation required a man who was elect to be sealed to them. And Joseph Smith stepped in in that role as a righteous man who was sealed to many women, single women and married women, single women who would be married to other men later on. And God allows the plural celestial marriage, and there's other reasons for it too. In Jacob chapter 2, it says that God allows it when he wants to raise up children, or uh, seed, basically, children in righteousness. It's not so that he can um, bolster the population. It is so that these children can be rise, raised up unto the Lord by righteous parents. And it is important and imperative that righteous children have the example of a righteous husband and a righteous mother. And there are very few men by number who qualify for the higher blessings because men are Well, there's just not as many of them who will qualify for these higher blessings. But women are more nurturous. They're more uh, humble. They're more Christ-like. And there are more women who will qualify for the higher blessings. But they cannot get there without being sealed to the man. That the husband and the wife are one in the Lord. And that the sealing ordinances that were given to Peter were given to Joseph Smith as well. And these sealing ordinances have to do with family relationships in the eternities. Which includes the sealing of the Holy Spirit of promise, men to women. Alright, so I'm going to See if there's anybody who have any questions or comments on this uh, topic. And uh, the guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. And then after, I, I, you know, see if we have anybody who has anything to say. I'm going to start talking about my own personal relationship with God and what He has done in my life, and I'm going to talk about my history and why I talk about the things that I talk about. And then um, that recording, which I will create, will stand on its own on Friday. So on Friday, I'm going to publish the recording that I'm going to publish today, but I'm going to publish it by itself and talk about my witness and my experience and my experience with Heavenly Father and with Jesus Christ and when I've seen them in the Spirit and when I've been taken up in the Spirit and when I've seen them in dreams and visions. And I'm going to go into detail about my experience where I saw the Father and the Son face to face and embraced them in the flesh. I'll also talk about when God told me commanded me to kneel before him and ask him who I am, and I'm going to talk about who I am. So we'll get into that on the other side um, after we see if, you know, if anybody has any questions or comments. Also, anybody can call in and ask me any of these things, anything you want, and uh, unless it's vulgar or something, I'll answer it, because I'm an open book. All right, thank you for listening, and let's go see if anybody has the guts to call in. So, and by the way, I know I like to mess around with you guys, but I'm kind of not messing around when I say he whose deeds are evil cometh not unto the light. So I hope that we have some callers, and I invite people to call. Monday through Friday between 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. And I will be available for people to talk to. Thank you for listening. Okay. So I just got loaded up here at the mine I'm headed down the road from the mine down to highway six and, um, it breaks up a lot in this little area. So, I am going to talk about my experiences, and I tried to do a recording earlier today, but um I was falling asleep. <laughs> I couldn't keep my my thoughts right and uh, and i I just I couldn't do it and then um for some reason, my alarm clock got set to some other time or something like that, so when I woke up. I I actually slept till like 4 today, which is uh, not normal for me. I usually go to sleep or wake up way earlier than that to go to the bathroom, but today I just was out, so I'm pretty tired, which is about the way it goes. I actually live on energy drinks uh, because of just the schedule that I have. Anyway... So, because I'm going to be breaking up a bunch in the next uh, five minutes, I'm just going to play this thing. It's 15 minutes long. Uh, This was a revelation received in 2015, I think, it goes 2015, and uh, it goes over the second endowment, which is not the second anointing, so it's, it's different. Anyway, you'll figure that out, so... This is uh, Revelation Received 2015, so here we go with that. And then after, after this recording, I will come back on and I'll talk about what I said I was going to talk about, so here we go.
3: School of the Prophets, the first oath and covenant of the priesthood. All those who enter into the School of the Prophets or the Relief Society shall have taken the oath and covenant of the priesthood upon them, which oath is done by raising both hands to the square and saying, o father unto thee i pledge my oath thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven i will do all in my power to bring thy kingdom upon the earth i covenant with thee that i will take thee as my law and i will obey thy revelations unto me whether they be revelations given to me or to another but which are confirmed to me it is the same i know that ye cannot fail and that i must obey the law upon which any blessing is predicated to get the good of that blessing even so amen brothers and sisters welcome to the school of the sons and daughters of the gods even the school of, of magi and of prophets and of seers and of, of priests and priestesses kings and queens i am the teacher that hath been appointed for this school and i am standing in my place at the head of the circle For there shall be established a circle with a triangle in the middle. The teacher and priest at the head of the circle is Elijah. The king upon the right side is called Messiah, and the magi upon the left is called Elias. You have come unto the house of the Lord to receive your second endowment in the school of the prophets and in the relief society. The mysteries of God shall be revealed unto you in the bonds of brotherhood, sisterhood, charity, and love. All the rooms which ye shall meet in for the school of the prophets from this day forth shall be dedicated as a temple unto the living God, which is his house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. Wherefore, if ye will obey the order of this house, ye will speak in turn, walk in turn, and let the love and charity that ye have one for another grow as ye perform these binding ordinances." For the order of the ordinances in this house alone will expand the love ye have for one another. Dedicatory Prayer The Dedicatory Prayer is a prayer of dedication by the inspiration of the Spirit, dedicating it as a school and temple of God. Inviting God into the house or dedicated room. All shall take a white handkerchief and waving them say, Hosanna, 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 to God and the Lamb. Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna, Hosanna, to God and the Lamb. Hosanna, 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 to God and the Lamb. Amen, Amen, and Amen. Now all those who wish to accept the obligations and blessings of the endowment, please raise your hands. Very well. Washing of feet. The holy priest's holder washing the feet shall invite the patron to sit down and place a basin of water in front of him to put his feet in. The Holy Priest, the holder, will then take off his garments and set them nearby, and gird himself with a long towel like a temple robe over one shoulder. He will then kneel down and begin the washing of the feet, saying, Brother, by the authority of the priesthood, after the order of the Son of God, I wash your feet preparatory to receiving your second anointing in the house of the Lord, that you may rule and reign in the house of Israel, or Adam, forever. And at this time wash you clean every whit that you are now clean from the blood and sins of this generation i wash you clean of the blood and sins of this generation and again i wash you clean of the blood and sins of this generation that you may be called up and come forth in the morning of the first resurrection and be clean without spot at the judgment bar of god for you have done your part to warn the people of this generation ridding your garments of their blood wherefore i declare by the authority of the holy priesthood that you are clean and that your sins are forgiven If ye have repented, and I do this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. This does not need to be the exact wording, but this is an example of the washing of feet. Salute. Now behold, mine son, after this has been done, he shall be accepted into the school by raising both hands high in the salute, And uh, and the priest shall also raise his hands high in the salute, and the priest shall say, Art thou a brother or brethren? I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant, in which covenant I receive you to fellowship, in a a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchangeable, to be your friend and brother, through the grace of God in the bonds of love, to walk in all the commandments of God, blameless, in thanksgiving, forever and ever. Amen. And he that is found unworthy of this salutation shall not have place among you. For ye shall not suffer that mine house shall be polluted by him, and he that cometh in and is faithful before me, and is a brother, or if they be brethren, they shall salute the president, or teacher, with uplifted hands to heaven, with this same prayer and covenant, or by saying, Amen, in token of the same. For behold, these words I gave to Joseph Smith, and they have not been abrogated. This shall be done in every session of the school of the prophets and the Relief Society. Healing and Blessing Sisters are to give each other blessings of healing and comfort by the laying on of hands in the Relief Society. Brethren are to do the same when they are moved upon to do so. Brethren and sisters may also bless and dedicate handkerchiefs to assist in the healing of the sick, as well as blessing and dedicating other objects for purposes of power in the priesthood. Objects which are for protection and not for healing should be blessed with a rod or wand. Being married to Christ Do you have faith that Jesus is the Christ? Yes. Then confess his name and covenant to never deny him as a testimony to the world. The initiate's own words. Then, thus saith the Lord to my messenger, Verily, verily, I say unto you, my son, I give unto you a commandment, declaring unto you that they who receive you receive me, and if they receive me, They receive him that sent you, to salute them with my salutation, in remembrance of my everlasting covenant, which I have received you to fellowship. May they receive you also, as you receive them, that they may be clean from the blood of this generation, and be received by the washing of the feet. For unto this end was the ordinance of washing of feet instituted, being bound together in the bonds of brotherly love, and sealed together by the covenant of life and peace, which covenant abideth forever with the celestial saints." or in other words, the married, uh, to Christ. And he that continueth not in this covenant shall not have place among you, for ye shall not suffer my house to be polluted by them, saith the Lord. Amen. Amen. All those in the school shall then either wash one another's feet, or give the holy kiss in token of the same. And they shall say to one another, Do you receive me to be your friend and brother, are you willing to salute me in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in token and or remembrance of the everlasting covenant in which you receive me to fellowship and in a determination that is fixed, immutable and unchangeable to be your friend and brother through the grace of God and the bonds of love to walk in their commandments of God blameless and thanksgiving forever and ever? Amen. Amen. Are you willing to show to the world that you are clean from the blood of this generation? Do you covenant with me in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? and in the presence of these witnesses, that you will love your companions in life as Christ loves the church, that you will cherish each other, comfort each other, forsaking all others who are not in the holy order, so long as you live? Yes. Having authority, I seal thee, brother, unto the anointed gods, even Christ, both male and female, and seal thee unto myself as mine own son in the first household of Jesus Christ, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Now men may be sealed to their wives in the second sealing, by taking them by the hand, and saying, Art thou my sister? I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant, in which I covenant to receive you to fellowship, in a determination which is fixed, and immovable, and unchangeable, to be your friend and brother, through the grace of God, in the bonds of love, to walk in all the commandments of God, blameless and thanksgiving, forever and ever amen amen behold sisters may also make the covenant and say amen in token of the same also to the unmarried i the lord willeth that you should be you should marry in in the order that i may have a pure people saith the lord all who have covenanted to only marry within the holy order say amen amen this order shall not be broken by any until they themselves stand in the garden of paradise, ready to fall, lest they be destroyed. Amen. amen. Covenant to enter into a united order. The patron receiving it will put his arm to the square and repeat after he who is administering the covenant, saying, I, brother, so-and-so, do covenant and promise before God, angels, and these brethren, in the united order, that I will consecrate all my mind, strength, and wealth unto this united order and that I will hold all things in common with my brethren, according to my stewardship. And I do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Baptism into the United Order After dedicating the water and going into the water as described above, you hold on to the one being baptized and raising your right arm to the square, you say, Brother, by the authority of the Melchizedek Priesthood, which I hold, I baptize you, into the order of Enoch, which is the united order before God, and I say this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You then immerse them in the water and then undedicate the water. The meal of the prophets, the members of the school and/or relief society shall sit at a table. A glass of wine and a small stack of flatbread shall be provided for each member. A blessing shall be given. O Father, which art in heaven, by the authority of the priesthood, after the order of the Son, we bless this bread to all the souls which shall partake of it, that they may do it in fellowship and brotherhood, being knit in one through the love of Christ, which is charity. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. O Father, which art in heaven, by the authority of the priesthood, after the order of the Son, we bless this wine to the souls which shall drink of it, that they may do it in the spirit, worshipping thee and their mother in spirit and in truth, being knit in one through charity, the greatest of all. For we know that if we are not one, then we are not yours. Even so, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The Washing of With Alcohol When only men are present, then there can be a washing with a cloth and alcohol. Brother, having authority, I wash your body clean, that it may be healthy, strong, and full of virtue and power. I wash your sins away with charity, making your garments white, even making thee clean every wit of the blood and sins of this generation. I do this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. The Provisional Anointing Brother, by the authority of the priesthood, after the order of the Son, and in the name of Jesus Christ, I pour this holy consecrated oil upon thy head, and give unto unto you a holy anointing. I anoint and ordain thee a king and a priest of the Most High God, to rule and reign in the house of Israel forever predicated upon this anointing being sealed i give thee power to bind on earth and have it bound in heaven and whomsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven and whomsoever thou shalt curse shall be cursed and whomsoever thou shalt bless shall be blessed but remember that these things must be done in accordance with those things which have been done before the foundations of the world i bless thee that ye shall come forth in the first and holy resurrection and i even ordain you to be one of the of Amen. i bless thy head and mind that you may receive revelations and carrying on the work. I bless thy eyes, that ye may see visions and the eternal worlds. I bless thy nose, that ye may smell the sweet smells of the eternal worlds. I bless thy mouth, that ye may speak truth. I give thee this holy anointing in the name of Elohim, and in the name of Jehovah, and in the name of the Godhead of this earth, even Michael, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost, who presides over the spirits of just men and women made perfect. Amen. Patriarchal Blessing Brother, by the authority of the patriarchal priesthood and in the, and the priesthood after the order of the Son, I lay my hands upon your head and give you a patriarchal blessing in the school of the prophets. Then you shall give the blessing by the Spirit, and do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Council of the Prophets The keys of the holy kiss shall be given. The first or ironic sign of the holy kiss is made by embracing and kissing the right cheek and then the left, and then the right again, and saying, Peace be upon you. The second, or Melchizedek, sign of the holy kiss is made by embracing and kissing the right cheek, and then the left cheek, and then the forehead, and saying, Peace be upon you. The third, or patriarchal sign of the holy kiss is to kiss upon the lips, and saying, God be with you. The first holy kiss is for brethren and sisters in the priesthood and siblings. The second holy kiss is for parent and child and the priesthood or familial bonds. The third holy kiss is for eternal mates or fellow eternal members of the holy order of the opposite gender that you love or are attracted to and feel close enough to, sufficient to merit this kiss. If the motion of this kiss, holy kiss is not reciprocated, then continue with the first in all charity and love. Let all receive it. Let all who are present give the appropriate holy kiss to those sitting upon their right hand and upon their left, and saying unto them, Peace be upon you or God be with you, or Shalom in token of the same. That will do. Now the members of the, holy, the school of, or the Relief Society shall return to the circle and a rod presented. Brethren and sisters, this rod is the rod of the word of God, and whoever shall hold the rod hath the right to speak, and all others must be silent until the possessor of the rod hath finished speaking. If you desire to speak, you should put your right foot forward until he who possesses the rod shall give thee the rod. Now if he shall continue to speak long enough after that, that it seemeth he is ignoring a brother or a sister, or a mother or a father, or a son or a daughter in the Lord, then all shall put their feet out also. He shall then repent himself of speaking and give the rod away. The rod is the word of and law of God, and that which is confirmed by the members. Having felt the Spirit shall be considered Scripture members shall confirm a saying, by raising both hands above their head and repeating it, and then saying, Amen, after it hath been proposed for a vote. Behold, brethren, now that we are one, let the mysteries be opened up unto us.
0: Okay,
1: like I said, that was received in 2015, I believe. Uh, It's been a while since I've looked at it, but... Anyway, I got a bunch of revelations um, where God has told me to sit down and write. And he gives me instructions and encouragement and, you know. So, anyway, um, so I guess I'll just talk about myself now. Um, My story really begins with my grandparents. So, my grandmother and grandfather were born in 1923 uh, my grandfather was raised in the Jewish slums of Chicago, Illinois, and my grandfather, uh, actually when he was 13, there was a gang that was picking on him, and he called out the gang leader and beat the ever-living crap out of him, and uh, and they made him the gang leader. So... And uh, when World War II started, he became a Marine. My grandmother was raised on a farm outside of Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And when she was 17, she met the missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and her whole family was converted and baptized. When World War II started, she joined the Navy and became a nurse. In the Navy. My grandmother, who lived all the way up until two years ago, last month, she was ninety, almost ninety-seven when she died. Uh, she just would have lived a month and a month and a half longer. She would have been ninety-seven. My um, my grandfather was eighty-two when he died. And uh, I'm going into the dip now, so it, it might break up a little bit. Sorry for that. But then I'll keep talking, and hopefully it doesn't break up too bad. So my grandfather was sent to the Pacific as a Marine. And in the heat of battle, my grandfather was shot. His platoon went on without him, medic took care of him, and my grandfather decided that he wasn't shot enough to stop fighting. So he went in the direction of his platoon and discovered that they were trapped in a turkey shoot. So there were two machine gun nests with four Japanese soldiers shooting from two different directions on the platoon, and they were pinned down. My grandfather, seeing this, hiked up around a different way and went up behind one of the machine gun nests and killed both of the machine gunners. When he was making his way towards the other nest, the Japanese soldiers saw he was coming towards them and they shot him a bunch. And they threw a grenade at him and it blew his foot, one of his feet, to pieces. So he played dead and when they were shooting at the platoon again, he pulled himself close enough to the net threw a grenade in the nest, which stunned both of the machine gunners, and he went in with his knife and killed them, and then he passed out. He thought he was dead, but He actually he did die. He um, went to a place, and there was a man, and the man told him his time had not come and that he needed to go back to his body They amputated the rest of that foot on the beach there in Iwajima. They actually amputated both of his feet there in Iwajima on the beach. Gangrene set in and they amputated little bit by little bit until his calves were gone and all he had left was about four inches well about five inches below the knee they took him to angel island in san francisco bay where my grandmother was a navy nurse and somehow my grandpa got a hold of the polka dotted hospital gown which was his which was unlike anybody else's and he was a character he learned to walk on wooden legs and when he got to the point where he could walk good enough he became a spokesman for the military as a war hero and went all over the Northwest and West Coast giving speeches And uh, I have newspaper articles of pictures of him. After the war had ended, he went back to Angel Island and told my grandmother that he wanted to marry her and that he was getting on a train the next morning and he told her how or where he would be, the hotel he was staying in, and if you want to marry me, this is where I am, and he said, um, if you're not there in the morning, I'll understand. Well, she showed up. They took the train to Sacramento, and they got married within a couple of days and then they took the train back to Chicago. My grandfather was a hard man. I don't know what changed him. He used to drink a lot of whiskey and smoke cigars and cigarettes. But around the time he was 35, he gave it all up and joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They had a daughter, and then they didn't have another daughter until she was 12 years old, and that's my Aunt Colleen. And then my mom came in 1957, and they lived in uh, Guadalajara, Mexico. My grandparents served seven missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They were also on the missionary committee for the LDS Church. And my grandfather knew Bruce R. McConkey and N. Eldon Tanner and Gordon B. Hinckley and all of those guys. Because my grandparents both received a pension from the military, they did not have to work, and they had special permission to be missionaries Set apart full-time missionaries with their children. So my mom and my aunt were raised in the mission field. Interesting story. Around the time of 1957 when my mom was born, my grandparents, um, they left Las Vegas because my grandfather found blue oil near apex nevada and blue oil is like the the most pure kind of oil that you can get doesn't need to be refined very much and uh the mob came in and took it over and my grandparents fled with my mom and my aunt well no not my mom my aunt down to mexico to escape um And my grandfather was a politician as well in Nevada. Anyway, so they went down to Mexico to escape the mob, and uh, my grandfather became good friends with the politicians in Guadalajara. Well, my grandpa would play poker with them on Thursday nights. And one of the times there was a big pot on the table, And my grandfather convinced them that if he won, that they would allow the LDS missionaries into Guadalajara, which for a time they had not. And because he won that poker game, they were able to get missionaries into Guadalajara over a poker game. So that's my grandpa. My... Mom married my dad when she was 18. He was 18. They're only a couple of days apart and like they were both born. June 11th, eight, uh, 1957 and June 15th, 1957. My Mom was very rebellious And like I said She was raised as a missionary Child And um, My dad was a member Of the LDS church My grandmother His mother Converted And I don't remember her whole story But she's the one that's uh, Ashkenazi Jew So she converted to Mormonism And Anyway my uh, My dad started doing drugs around the time I was born. So they lost a baby before me, but I'm the oldest living. So my dad, my, my mom got into drugs. My dad got really, really heavy into drugs. And in fact, when my sister was born, who is younger than I, he was committed to the mental ward at um, Utah State, the, the hospital at the U- University of Utah, I can't remember what it's called, Utah State, University Hospital or something, I don't know. Anyway, my mom gave birth and they allowed him to leave the psychiatric ward to go see my mom give birth to my sister. Around the time my, I was three years old, my dad got really heavy into drugs and criminal activity and cheated on my mom. With some other drug addict that he later married and uh my mom divorced him and i didn't see my dad from the time i was three until i was 10 years old my his mom was always there in our lives though but he was gone living with this other woman they had a family together um His daughters, my half-sisters, they don't know anything about this. And whenever they found out that I was, you know, when I talked about it, they called me a horrible, evil liar and whatever, because he, you know, doesn't talk about these things, of course. But anyway, so um, when I was two years old, because of all the turmoil in my family, my grandparents took me and helped raise me. And... Uh, after my mom got married again to an abusive alcoholic whose dad was a drill sergeant in the military, and he was also in the military. He was Navy, and then he became Air Force, and then Civil Service. Um, oh, and it's going to break up again here. Hold on. I have a $500 antenna on my truck. For cell phone, and it helps a lot, but, you know, I drive a semi-truck for a living, so that's what I'm doing right now as I'm talking, but anyway, um, anybody can call in uh, to ask me any questions about any of this stuff or theology. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827, and I'm almost to the top of wash plants which is a hill I'm climbing right here. Okay, so my mom married this guy when I was six years old, and I still remember. He was, he was awesome. And then after my mom married him, he revealed his true nature. And um, she finally left him when I was 12 years old because... I was not holding my fork right, and he stabbed me in the arm with a steak knife and uh, his dad was really hard on him because he was the oldest, so as you know he was really hard on me and uh, he just it was it was really abusive anyway, but my grandparents helped raise me a lot, but um they would go to church, but my grandpa had you know, wooden legs, and he would get phantom pains in his legs that weren't there, and he would have to be on morphine, and, um, you know, sometimes he would have to be hospitalized. Um, And it was painful for him to sit in the church pews, so we'd go to church for sacraments, and then if the meeting was too long he would just like get up and walk out and we'd follow him we'd go home so that was my grandpa anyway um he also my grandparents owned an opal mine up in spencer idaho so we did spend a lot of time mining opals and making jewelry and i spent a lot of time chopping wood as a kid and taking care of the animals and going to get water from the well for drinking water because we didn't, we, the town we lived in had 30 people in it. Anyway, so my mom sent me to live with them a lot, but I also lived with my aunts. And then I lived with my dad twice when I was 12 years old and when I was 14. Um, I actually threw a knife at my mom and they took me to juvenile detention and then, after I got out of there my uh my dad came and t- picked me up and I lived with him for a while. but I was in and out of um, alcoholic rehab centers by the time I was fourteen uh youth homes because um, I was so angry about what happened to me, all of this stuff that happened to me as a kid, and how my mom would send me away and neglect me and um And I look a lot like my dad, so I think she has a problem with me because she loved him and he destroyed his life and then cheated on her and left her. So, and then my stepdad that was an alcoholic, it was just, um, it was bad. Anyway, um, I was in Primary Children's um, Medical um, Psychiatric Ward, third Third Floor West Wing. When I was 14, and they came to the conclusion that I actually was just reacting to the situation that I was in, and they did not diagnose me with anything but severe depression. I actually um, told my mom that I wanted to kill myself when I was nine years old. and. Um, I don't know, it's a mess Anyway, so By the time I'm 16 I'm in uh, 10th grade And in 1994 and a month before 10th grade My aunt and uncle Who were taking care of me at the time Decided to take me out of school A month before 10th grade ended And we got We lived in Soda Springs, Idaho Anyway, and then we went to live in Kaysville, Utah um, Where my aunt rented a single wide trailer home and I got a job and then um I got a motorcycle because I was 16 and my aunt came to my work one day and she said uh, I'm gonna go visit my husband I will be back in a week and she gave me the key to the house and I uh I went home and all their things were gone and there was a note on the table that said that I was old enough to be emancipated and that it was not her responsibility. I called my mom. She doesn't want me to live there with her. She says that her boyfriend didn't like me even though that she was living with. But even though I didn't know him, I'd never met him, but he didn't like me. So whatever. Um, That guy was actually an ex-sundowner which is a motorcycle gang. He's a big guy. He's military too. Anyway, um, he was Vietnam military. All right. So, um, pretty rough guy. Anyway, so um, not long after that, I ended up homeless, living in my friend's rafters. The people who owned the trailer, ha- uh, tra- single white trailer house, they kicked me out. Ended up homeless, living in the rafters of some guy's garage that was a friend of mine, and his mom would let me come in the house and take a shower once a day, and then I had a job. So that's what I did. And uh, anyway, my grandparents found out what was going on. They came and got me. Uh, My grandpa was friends with a guy at Larson's Farms in Hamer, Idaho, and I became a truck driver on the farm, and this farm is massive, and uh, it's in Hamer, Idaho, and it's potatoes. So it was during the potato harvest, uh, and I drove a truck in the potato fields from midnight to 4 p.m. six days a week. I was the only person on my crew that spoke English besides my supervisor. Everybody else was from Mexico. Um, And then I went into job after that and I wanted to learn how to fix trucks because I wanted to be a truck driver so anyway that was 1994 in 1996 I graduated from Job Corps and I became homeless again yeah but I had a car by that time so anyway I lived in my car started doing a lot of drugs tried to commit suicide it was messed up. My life was so screwed up. Anyway, so um, I got to the point where I decided, you know, I'm going to be homeless again. I was homeless on and off. I was like using drugs to try not to not kill myself, but not be a conscious individual. And I was getting drunk all the time. And so anyway, I was going to be homeless. So I decided to wrap 2 ace bandages around my upper arms. And everywhere that a blood vessel popped out, I sliced into it. And my arms were so sliced up, tic-tac-toe style, that they had to use uh, glue because they couldn't stitch it together. Well, so my friend found me. He was supposed to be at work. He hid his gun from me, or else I would have used that. And uh, anyway, so I got my life was saved by, you know, him coming home because he forgot his lunch. Anyway, after they let me out of the hospital, um, I wrote got a letter, and I told him how screwed up my life was and how screwed up I was, and I I needed his help, and I needed him to heal me and to show me the truth, and if he would do that, I would serve him for the rest of my life. It wasn't long after that that two missionaries, Elder King and Elder Bowman, showed up on my door in Layton, Utah. And I was nice to them. Oh, by the way, I had tried to get my name removed from the church when I was in Job Corps because I was baptized in 1986. So I was nine years old when I was baptized. And um, my grandparents told my mom that they didn't get me baptized that she would be out of the will. That's why I got baptized. Not because we were going to church or any of that. So anyway, and my grandparents, because of investments and the open line and a bunch of other things, they had a lot of money. So anyway, um, I, uh, I tried to leave the LDS church when I was 16, I think it was. And I, I became a Baptist, a Southern Baptist, and... Uh, Anyway, so something interesting. During that time when I was in Job Corps, uh, and this was my first major spiritual experience. Now, I had seen Satan all my life. The first time I I remember seeing him, I was five years old. I didn't know what to call him, but that was during the time of, you know, Return of the Jedi and Star Wars and all of that. So um, we were living in North Salt Lake city, Utah. And I remember the light was coming in my room because my window was facing towards the east and the sun was coming up. And I remember I could see in from my bed into the kitchen and see the stove and the light there in the stove on the stove. My mom would wait. she'd keep it on, you know, at night. Anyway, so there was this man standing in my door, but he was completely in black like a black shadow standing in my door with a top hat on and a cloak. And I didn't know what to call him, like I said, so I told my mom Darth Vader was in my room. Anyway, but this same individual who I later found out was Satan, is Satan, um, he followed me around all my life. And everywhere I went, there was always paranormal activity. And, um, And it was bad. And my mom would see things, my aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters would see things. In fact, when I was 14, Satan came into my room where my brother and I were, who was six years younger than me. And so I guess he was around eight years old. And uh, Satan actually tried to pull off the whole angel of light thing that people talk about how he does that. Well, he tried to, to do that with me and my brother. Anyway, so um, oh, I'm gonna it's gonna break up. You know what? Um, I will call back in in just a minute after I get through this area. That way, the recording is back in a couple of minutes. Okay, I'm back. Uh, so on the podcast, when it uploads, uh, any dead air like that should be edited out it, before it goes to iTunes, but anyway, so, um, so when I was in Job Corps, um, it was a Sunday night, and my friends and I were all talking in the, the dorm there, and they all went to the kitchen, or to the, the cafeteria to get food, and I stayed in the room. And I remember I was laying on the top bunk, looking at the ceiling, and I was taken up in the spirit against my will. So I've had out-of-body experiences, a lot of them, where God takes me and he shows me things. And I think this is the first time that ever happened. So I was taken by Jesus Christ to the Salt Lake Temple. So I was in Job Corps in Clearfield, Utah. And like within an instant, like in a flash, I was standing in the Salt Lake Temple in the spirit, and Jesus Christ was there. And this is the first time I'd ever seen him. And he showed me through the telestial room, the terrestrial room, the the celestial room, and into the, you know, into the temple. Uh, We made our way up through where the... Uh, council room is and uh, eventually we made our way up through the uh, stairway which was a wraparound stairway on the east side of the temple and there's a room up there and in fact if you look it's behind the the gold uh, thing that says the uh, house of the lord if you look on the north and the south sides of that tower, there are two windows, because there is a room there. And Jesus Christ took me up to the threshold of this room and told me to go in. And when I walked into that room, it was like walking into the most powerful, intense love and Holy Spirit and peace that was like fire I and mean, I don't even know how to describe it. It was so overwhelming. Now before I walked in, I saw in the room there was an altar uh, with um, for somebody to kneel that was flush and it was facing towards the east, towards the wall and there was curtains in that room and the room seemed to be circular uh, because of the curtains and there was a bench that went all the way around the room and in the middle, there was this altar where you could kneel and pray. And um, I heard the voice of the Father, and the Father said to me that I would be the Lord's anointed prophet when Jesus Christ returned. Before I had time to even react to what he told me, I was All of a sudden, in an instant, at the speed of light, I mean, it was like a rush. And I was back in my body, and my spirit hit my body, and my whole body jumped. I I didn't know what to think about it, because I thought Joseph Smith was a false prophet. I had tried to get my name removed from the church. I was a Baptist. I was very anti-Mormon. Yeah, this thing happened to me. So that was in 1995. Well, in 96, I was, you know, I graduated Job Corps, and then I got into drugs because I was so suicidal back then because my mom didn't want me. Nobody wanted me. And I was so screwed up. I didn't know what to do with myself. So anyway, I started getting into drugs. And uh, I had a car because... um, When you get out of Job Corps, they pay you a bunch of money for all the trades that you do. So I got my GED, and I got my trades, and I did a bunch of other training. And so I got a car when I got out, and I lived in my car. I was a mechanic for a while. I was a truck driver for a while, delivering produce. And anyway, I ended up homeless and uh, went out to Reno, uh, San Francisco, and the Stockton area. And, uh, anyway, when I came back, I lived up Farmington Canyon in the campsite and I would, I just was there, you know? So anyway, um, I got into a roommate situation with a friend that I had who was in the military at Hill Air Force Base. He fixed, uh, F-16s up there in a hush house. Anyway, and that was the guy I was living with when I met the missionaries. So, um, So anyway, so I wrote this uh, letter to God And I told him, you know, if he'll show me the truth And heal me, I will serve him for the rest of my life And he, he healed me When I asked, when after I met the missionaries And I felt peace and they told me how to pray And they told me about Joseph Smith and the first vision And why he asked God what church he should join and all of that After they left, I knelt down on my knees and I asked God if Joseph Smith was a true prophet. And when I tell you that it was like hot oil pouring into the top of my head, flowing through my whole soul, down into my feet, I was completely healed. And the love of God was so powerful. And I heard an innumerable host of heaven singing praises to God. And I was completely 100% healed of all my drug addictions at that point. So long story short, my roommate kicked me out because I had converted and they were all into witchcraft. And I was goth, too. Hardcore goth. Um, In fact, interesting, information about me. Whenever I hear the music I used to listen to during that time of my life, I cry because it brings back so many horrible memories. So anyway, I ended up homeless again. So this was in December of 96 into January of 97 for about a month and a a week or something like that. Well, my grandfather Who had no idea where I was And who knew The last thing he heard Was that I hated the LDS church And I was a Baptist Well he was laying there in bed In Richfield, Utah Before he took Or before he put his legs on And God audibly spoke to him And told him to find me And to send me on a mission He said that was the only time He had ever heard the voice of God But he heard it audibly so my he told my mom that she had better go find me. Well, she did find me. And she took me to her house in Taylorsville, Utah and my grandparents drove up from Richfield. And my grandfather gave me two options. He said that he would put me up at the Little America Hotel for four years while I went to college. Or I could go on a mission and I could go to college I my IQ when I was in the psychiatric ward was 147 Um, of course before that was before my drug use Um, but anyway I chose to go on a mission so uh, they took me down to Richfields, Utah and I remember if you've been homeless in the wintertime and then you get to sleep in a real bed with sheets and blankets I don't even know how to describe how wonderful that is. Anyway, my grandparents since they Church Seven Missions they taught me how to teach like they taught. And they were successful. Like they were on the missionary committee. Anyway, so um so uh, in ninety seven, um I went through all the hoops and everything. I got the Melchizedek priesthood. Uh, I got my patriarchal blessing, which says in, I, all right, I have been given the greatest gift that God has to bestow, the gift of eternal life, which I didn't know what that meant. But the patriarch and the state president said that I had qualified to have my calling and election made short, which was weird because I was just a drug addict the year before, and I tried to commit suicide, and my life was complete chaos, but this is what it says in my patriarchal blessing, which that thing in my patriarchal blessing, I would want to understand what it meant to have your calling an election major, because that's what they told me it was, what this meant. For years, I asked, from 97 until 2003, I asked what that meant, so anyway, I went on my mission, May twenty-first, I think, two thousand, or I mean, nineteen ninety-seven, and then I went to Macon, Georgia. The Macon, Georgia mission, my first area was Savannah, Georgia. On the plane ride out there, my eardrums burst because nobody came to see me at the airport when I left. I didn't. Nobody. Nobody was there. No friends. No family. And I was so upset. So, and I had a head cold, and I'm getting on an airplane, and I'm crying, and my eardrums burst. By the time I got to Phoenix, I could hardly hear my eardrums. After they burst one time, they kept on doing their thing. And by the time I got to the Macon-Georgia mission, I was completely deaf. Well, not completely. I could hear really loud noises. But anyway, so, um, but I, I – Did my best to, you know, keep up with Elder Burton. So Mayan Burton was my first companion. And he was the nephew of Theodore Burton, who was the bishop of the LDS church. And he was a hard-working farm boy from Rexburg, Idaho. Anyway, um, long story short, uh, the infection that developed in my ears went down into my lungs. My right lung diaphragm collapsed. Um, I remember that they they showed me the x-rays. It, it was messed up. Anyway, so they sent me home on medical leave. Well, my mom let me stay in a trailer in her driveway, but I was only allowed to come in the house to shower. And then I was like going to treatments and there was a bunch of stuff. Anyway, all of the Doctors eventually released me to go back on my mission, and they were going to send me out to somewhere in the, uh, in the, uh, the desert in um, southwest, the southwest part of the United States because uh, they thought that the humidity was screwing with me with the infection and all of that. Anyway, but one of my doctors who was a psychiatrist would not release me to go back into the mission. And eventually they released me from being a missionary, and I went to live with my sister's in their apartment. And um, I had a CDL since I was a, I was a trained diesel mechanic, so I, and I was 21, so I went over the road as a truck driver because I had nowhere else to go. Anyway, so from, from 1998, so I was only on the mission for just a little under a year. I I was released in March of 1998. Anyway, so I went on the road as a truck driver, and I was on the road. For, I've been a truck driver ever ever since. But in 2003, I started doing belly dumps, which is what I do now. Anyway, but um. I was headed down to, on one of my last loads, um, working for Warner Enterprises, and I I was driving from Salt Lake to Los Angeles, and I had to be there on Monday, and I left on Friday, so, like, I was taking my time, and south of Beaver, Utah, there was an exit up in the mountains, a ranch exit, and I pulled over, and I'm sitting there on the on-ramp, off on the shoulder and I'm asking God again, what does this mean that I have had or that I have been given the gift of eternal life and what does it mean to have your calling an election made sure and I've read everything I can get my hands on to try to understand this. And that is when I was taken up in the flesh. God took me in an instant with my body to a meadow and there was a creek, and I heard the voice of God tell me to wash off in the creek, and I felt the water, the cold water. I could feel the breeze, and he said, look, and I looked, and there was a trail, like a cattle trail in the mountains, and he said, follow this trail, and I climbed that trail, and it went up along the base of a cliff, and then up around the cliff, and I got on the top of the cliff and looked over the valley, and then continued following the trail, and there was only, there was no trees, it was all sagebrush, I mean, there was trees off in this other canyon, but anyway, so I'm like going down, or going up this trail, and I continue to walk a very long period of time over the ridge of this mountain. Up into a higher mountain and into the trees and when I got to the top of the mountain I could see that at the top there was a small temple now this was in 2003 I don't know if the Monticello Temple which was the first mini temple was there but it kind of looked like that kind of anyway so I walk up to this temple and I see this door and this plaque and it says house of of the Lord and on the door it said enter in and obtain uh, your calling and election and God told me to take off my shoes and I walked into this temple into the foyer of this temple and there was (sighs) minimal furniture in that room and in the hallway that led back to this other room uh, but I remember looking at this chandelier that was in the foyer, and it was, there were the stones of Jared, like, and the stones of Noah that Noah put in the ark to give light, Yeah, the stones that Jared put in the, the, you know, the submersible barges to give light. And like this chandelier had these rocks that were glowing in it, but everything emanated light in that room. And I remember that there was this table of white marble. And there was a, a mirror on the wall. And there was a vase, of vase, with white roses. And they glowed. They gave off their own light. And I walked to this
0: t- this. <coughs>
1: It wasn't a doorway, it was this maroon, velvet, like really, really thick cloth. Like this cloth was like four inches thick. It was unlike anything, I don't even know like how to describe it, and it was hung on a rod, with iron rod with gold caps, and there were gold rings holding this this curtain up, which was completely covering this door, and... I stuck my hand through the door, or the, the curtain, the veil, and I walked into this room. And when I walked into that room, it was like when I walked into that, the Holy of Holies of the Father, which is in the Salt Lake City Temple, which is separate from the Holy of Holies of the Son, which is by the Celestial Room. Anyway, but um, it was like the power of God... And the love of God times infinity in this place. And I, when I walked into the room, overwhelming love. And, I, and the, the room was kind of long. And at the other end of the room, there was this really, really bright, brilliant light. And I walked towards the light. And when I came into God's glory, I saw that there was a man standing in the light. And as I came closer, I saw that the man, and I knew that this was the father, who looks very much like the son. So the father and the son, Jesus is very slender, and his face is more slender, but the father is more filled out. And I don't, they look almost identical, but I can tell them apart because the father, it looks more filled out, like his body and his his face is just more more filled out than the sun he's not fat he's very strong but anyway so um, I fell on my face before him and he told me to get up and he opened his arms to me and I walked I went towards him and I embraced him in the flesh and he was standing a couple of feet above the ground so he's about the same height I am I think but um, he was elevated and when I put my arms around his chest or around his waist with my head against his chest I could feel his body and he told me and and he wrapped his arms around me too and it was like I was beating my father my real father And he told me to kneel before him, and I asked him what he was doing, and he said, I'm sealing you to myself, that you may be sealed up unto eternal life. I kneeled before him. He put his hands on my head. And I don't know what he said, because as I was looking down with his hands on my head, there was light emanating from me brilliant white light and I was so I I wasn't expecting that he told me to get up and that's when I saw Jesus and I embraced him as well now I'm at the power plant now so I'm going to get off the phone again I'm going to call back in as soon as as soon as I'm done here, so it won't have all this dead air. If you're listening live, I'm sorry that I got to do this. So, I will be back in just one minute if you're listening to the podcast, and it'll be a couple minutes before I come back to the live. So. Okay, I've done what I needed to do. I'm sitting on the grizz, getting ready to go. Okay, Riley, you're good to go.
0: Uh, thank you. All right, I'm dumping my load. <laughs> All right.
1: So um, this is when I saw Jesus in the flesh, and I embraced him as well. And we were standing eye level with each other. He was not standing up. Above the ground Anyway so um, Heavenly Father tells me to take uh, To go with Jesus And that he's going to answer, answer Some of my questions And um, so I went with him Back Towards the front of the temple And there was this room and there were these benches And we sat down And we talked For a while And I was Allowed to ask some questions, and I asked him, You know what do you want me to do like I asked him about staying a truck driver, I asked him about my future wife and family, and he said he was preparing her at this time, and that um, he told me that all well he told me to stay a truck driver until he takes me out of this work, and he told me that um <clears throat> he told me all the things that I had been made to go through that he allowed to happen in my life for his own, for his wife's purpose. And that he was preparing me to go through or to become the servant that he wanted to mold me into the servant and to be a witness and to teach and be an example. And, you know, so he talks about, and I'm going to, I'm going to have to do, a program where I actually read it because after this experience he told me that I would be returning to live on the earth which for many years I didn't even realize that he said that but I wrote it down because after I got back to my truck I wrote everything down everything in detail very detailed and um, and I, di- I didn't realize that they'd taken me off the earth so he took me to this place called Mount Vashel, which is where the father's temple is. And um, and that's where I saw the father and the son face to face. So I, for many years, like I only told close family members um, that I trusted and a few friends. But... <clears throat> whenever I talked about these things, like I didn't, I didn't, cause the church says you're not supposed to share sacred experiences. And so, but I wanted people to know that God does love us and that he does live. So I would talk about my experience as though it was somebody else. And I actually have videos that I made, I think in 2008 where I made a YouTube video, which is short cause back then they only allowed you like 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Anyway, but, like, I would talk about these things, like, in the third person. Kind of like Paul talks about a man in Christ he knew which was caught up to the third heaven. Well, that was his own experience, but he was talking about it in the third person. So, anyway, um, so that, you know, for many years, God gave me revelations. He gave me visions. I was taken up in the spirit. He would show me things, Um That's why I talk about, like, the polygamy thing uh, and where the intelligence comes from and how the elements and the intelligence and the laws of the universe are eternal because God took me up and he showed me things. And he taught me so much from 2003 to 2013. Well, in 2013... I was being excommunicated from the LDS church for talking about the Adam God doctrine with people. Like I just mentioned I didn't even know that it was against the rules, you know? And I believe it because I study like that. I spent all these years in the semi truck just listening to stuff, reading books, doing missionary work all over North America. And in two thousand and twelve God put me together with my wife, and, like, we didn't even know each other, but, uh, and she can talk about this another time, and we've talked about it in the past, but, like, from the time that we met online was, like, March, I think, and then the first time I called her was in May, and then God told her to... To bear me children and ease my burden, and he told me to marry her, and I was like, I'm not gonna tell her that you're telling me to marry her. She's gonna think I'm crazy. Anyway, then she she called me and she says God told me that I'm supposed to bear you children and ease your burden, and I was like, I know. I guess, you know, we're gonna get married, and and then I was like, we should like Skype or something, 'cause I was living in Florida, she lived in New Hampshire, upstate New Hampshire. And, uh, we made plans and I flew up on June 30th, one day after my birthday in 2012 to meet her for the first time and met her family up in upstate New Hampshire and upstate New York. Um, we drove down to South Car- North Carolina, North Carolina, and I met our family down there. And then we drove down to St. Petersburg, Florida, and we were married 20 days after we first met in person. Her parents were very unhappy about this. (laughs) And I believe that her mom actually turned me in because I believed that polygamy was a true doctrine and I believed the Adam God doctrine and Um, They thought I was a heretical apostate Anyway, so The stake president interviews me I tell him about my experiences Oh, also, I didn't say this But in 2004 God told me To write President Hinckley a letter And go in detail About my experience in 1995 Where I was called up to the Salt Lake Temple And the Holy of Holies of the Father and my experience with the Father. And I didn't tell him that God told me I would be the last prophet. But I did draw diagrams and d- details. Anyway, so I sent that in on a Monday. And on Thursday, I get a call from my stake president, and he says, somebody wants to meet you. Will you please be to sacrament 30 minutes before the meeting starts? And just you know, sit there in the pews. So anyway, so me and my first wife, before we got married, we were just dating. Um, we we're sitting there, and Elton Perry comes walking into the room, and we—he interviewed me. And right there in front of my my girlfriend, who became my wife, who was President Hinckley's niece or great niece, and like President Hinckley knows my grandparents. We used to go to church with President Hinckley at the Joseph Smith Memorial building in the chapel there. I was at Marjorie Hinckley's funeral. I've been to their graves many times. Anyway, but L. Tom Perry comes and interviews me. And I remember his cheesy grin and his, he slapped me on the back. And he said, well, God's the one that chooses his prophets because we sure don't. Which I didn't understand at the time, but I do now. I know exactly what he was talking about. So anyway, um, I told my state president about that in 2012, and he said that I was a bold-faced liar. And he was very angry about me believing in the Adam God Doctrine. He was very angry about my experience with the father and the son. And I told him, look, I, like Pom Perry brought me this paperwork. I showed him the documents because they gave me copies of the letters back with the archive numbers on them. Office of the First Presidency, email of the First Presidency, and two different archive numbers two different archive members. I showed him and I said, L. Tom Perry interviewed me about this. Just contact him. Ask him about me. He knows who I am. And I'd seen him around Temple Square a bunch, too. Like, we knew each other. And I personally believe L. Tom Perry was murdered. But I won't get into that at this time. But, but the state president didn't care. And anyway, so they set my excommunication trial And um, I was not able to get home because I was an over-the-road truck driver out of Hartford, Connecticut. I was trying to get home so I could be at this trial of law that they're going to have for, for me. And the stake president said, it doesn't matter if you're there, you're going to be excommunicated. I wasn't even able to get to my own trial. And it was predetermined that it didn't matter what I said that I would be excommunicated. And I was so upset because the church was everything to me. And I wasn't going to deny what I had experienced. And I was bitterly weeping on my knees. And God said, he came to me and he said, kneel down before me and ask me who you are. Now, he had tried to tell me through through the whispering of the Spirit that I was one mighty and strong. And I just, I couldn't believe that I would, I was like, nope, that's prideful, that's the devil, I'm not going to listen, and it was just the whispering. And my aunt, Received a revelation, and she knew that I was mighty and strong. And I was like, nope. But the Father said, kneel down before me and ask me who you are. And I said, Father, who am I? And he took me up in the spirit, and I saw this vast congregation of people, and I saw a platform, and on the platform I saw three thrones. And in front of those thrones stood three men, the Father, the Son, and God the Witness, or the Holy Ghost. And in front of them I saw 12 individuals, and behind them I saw many, and they were the noble and great ones. They're like the 70. And the mighty and strong ones were a quorum of 12 who were like apostles in front of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, who are also considered mighty and strong. And I saw Lucifer stand up, who was God the witness, or the Holy Ghost, the bearer of light and truth. In Hebrew, his name is Hillel. In Latin, it is Lucifer, which is a title of God the witness. I saw the rebellion take place. I saw him stripped of his name and his title, and I saw him be renamed Hasatan, or the accuser of the brethren, and I saw him and others cast out of heaven, which even the, about half the quorum of the mighty and strong ones went with him. But I was standing among those who were mighty and strong. And I saw the Father and the Son walk down from their platform. And they came to me and they took me and they put me at the throne of God the witness. And I took the place of Lucifer. And the reason I have seen the Father and the Son face to face is because I am an apostle of the Father. I am an eyewitness of the Father and the Son. And I am also mighty and strong. And I saw the Father go among the noble and great ones and choose others to fill the vacancy of the 12 that stood in front of us, and that for this earth, under the direction of Jehovah our Elohim, is God the Creator, who is Michael. God the Redeemer, who is Yeshua, or Jesus Christ. And myself, the witness of the Father and the Son. And that I saw, saw 12 others who were also mighty and strong. And for a long time, I thought Joseph Smith was God the Witness. By the way, I have never been revealed that I'm Joseph Smith. I'm not claiming that. I don't know. I believe Joseph Smith was standing with me. Among they who are mighty and strong. But when I saw these things, I looked at Heavenly Father and I said, "It took me a minute, and it just dawned on me what I had just seen, which was so heavy." And I said, (laughs) "I said, am I the witness?" And he looked at me with this big smile on his face. And I perceived that he was like, you're finally starting to wake up. You're, you're finally starting to see. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, well, there has to be Somebody. And then he told me to be bold in my witness. And he told me to teach the people. That was in 2013. That was in January of 2013. Later on that that same year, he told me to take the authority that he gave me. So... After that all happened, there was another man whose name was Joshua Sparks, and as I was telling him about my experience, God took him up and he saw the Father place His hands on my head. Now I had been concerned because I was like, like God told me to rededicate the center place in Missouri and all four of the temple lots, and He said, "Fill it up unto me," and I, I was like, I. I have the filling power. I didn't even know. Okay, but I did what God instructed me, and I filled it up into Him. And then I was like, "How did I get the filling power?" And anyway, so I told Kevin Crow about this, and he said, "Well, let me give you my priesthood." So anyway, we didn't know, you know. And anyway, so I'm I'm like telling my friend Joshua Sparks about this, and he was taken up, and he saw the Father placed His hands on my head and He heard what the Father said. When the Father had His hands on my head and He was filling me up unto Himself unto eternal life, He was also conferring all of the keys of the priesthood and the kingdom and the church upon me. And He was giving me the fullness of the priesthood, which only the Father can give, which is not just the Melchizedek priesthood. It is more than that. So when Heavenly Father says be bold with my witness, I stopped talking about it in the third person and I have been bold. In 2013 God told me to raise my arms to the square and this was in July, July 15th 2013 to sever the ordinances, and priesthood of all the holy people on the earth. I asked why he wanted me to do that, and he said, if they will not accept you as my witness, I will not accept them. Because you cannot accept one member of the Godhead and reject another and think that you're going to come into the presence of the Father. That the Father sends me as a witness to testify to you, to bring you to Christ, and Christ brings you back to the Father. That is the order of things. A month after he told me to sever the power, the priesthood, and the ordinances of all the holy people, I found uh, my. Aunt, I told my aunt about this, and she found in Daniel chapter 12, where in the last days, Michael stands up from his throne, and he talks about an angel, or not an angel, but a man clothed in linen, who raises his hands to the air, so I I raised my hands to the square, and scatters the power of all the holy people. This is the priesthood of the holy people on the earth in the last days. That prophecy of Daniel chapter 12 was fulfilled in July of 2015. I mean,
0: July 15, 2013.
1: He commanded me to organize the Church of the Living Messiah, which I have done. And he commanded me to start teaching the people. And, he, and I started doing that in January of 2014, shortly after the death of Ariel Sharon. So I have more to say on this, but I really don't have time, so I will have to do a video and I'll have to talk about all these things, but that is why I say who I am and why I share my witness, because the Father told me to be bold, and I am probably not as bold as I should be, but I am the witness of the Father and a witness. An apostle of the Father and stand next to Jesus Christ as the witness when I testify to you that it is true and that I have seen them face to face and that they do love us more than you can possibly imagine and they live when I say this in the name of Messiah Amen. All right, so I'll be back on tomorrow with another episode of Fundamentally Mormon. And just thank you everyone for listening. And we'll leave it at that. Have a good night. Take care everyone. God bless. Say goodbye.